I'm Nick Turzo, and you are listening to The Radical. My guest this week, contrary to his young age, has been involved in a myriad of music projects. His newest band, Sixa, released their new record earlier this year. It's a fascinating record encompassing styles like cumbia, Peruvian chicha, and rock. It's beautifully ethereal and perfectly captures the harsh beauty of the Southwest. He was also recently chosen by the Kennedy Center to represent the state of Arizona in its Across America series. Aside from his solo work, he has also performed with artists such as KT Tunsil, Calexico, and Giant Sand. Singer-songwriter Brian Lopez joins me this week to explore his creativity and unique path as an independent artist. Up next, my chat with Brian Lopez. Hey, Brian, thanks for coming to the show. Hey, Nick, glad to be here, man. Good to see you. It has been a long time, so I'm going to try to fill in some blanks here with you today. Let's do it. Yeah, I can't even remember the last time I saw you. Maybe it's been about 10 years since I've seen you CC'd on an email, but <laughs> but yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. So we have some catching up. So you have a, a new a band, a new band, mm-hmm. fairly new band called Sixa. Mm-hmm. Sixa. And you, have a, and you have a new record out called Genesis. That's true. Genesis. Is that right? That is correct. And it's fascinating because it's this really um, ethereal, kind of moody, um, definitely captures your geography in a way, uh, which is interesting um, since you're in Tucson. It definitely has a feel of the Southwest to it. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. Who, who else um, is in the band with you? And uh, I know you alternate vocals somewhat. Yeah. Yeah, we're basically like the Chicano Beatles. No. Um, so we, it's actually a six piece and it's fronted by myself and a, a producer, musician, uh, songwriter named Gabriel Sullivan, who's a, one of my best friends here in town and also just a, a very talented songwriting peer. Um, we started the group, I'd say like in 2012, and we were called Chicha Dust at the time. And we were a cover band covering psychedelic Peruvian Chicha music. Because that's what one does, obviously, when when you're bored. And we What's did it. chicha music? Explain explain that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, chicha is it's a genre that emerged from Peru in the '60s and '70s. And when your listeners um, think of Peruvian music, they might what comes to mind might be more of like the mellifluous pan flute type you know, Appalachian songs, very melody driven, beautiful songs. But this was in the 60s and 70s when rock and roll was kind of making its way down to Latin America. So you're getting a lot of like Farfisa organs. Um, You're getting a lot of, you know, Fender Jaguars and Jazz Masters kind of surf rock uh, influence type stuff. And uh, yeah, it was like a subculture of, of a cumbia which is pretty popular. Um, there's different types of cumbias spread throughout Latin America, but Peru is very interesting. It's a very tropical, very psychedelic type of, of cumbia, and, it, and they call it chicha, which is also a fermented uh, alcoholic beverage as well. So some of your listeners might know the drink 
But um, so I got obsessed with this music in about around 2010. I was playing a a show in um, Brooklyn at a place called Barbes, which still exists. Um, and I played one uh, cover song called Ojos Azules. And I didn't even realize the song was of Peruvian origin. And the uh, bar owner um, pulled me aside afterwards and said, oh, I love that song. You love Peruvian music? I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, that's a Peruvian song. Well, check this out. I'm not just a bar. I'm also running a label in our first compilation I just released this year. And he showed me this compilation called Roots of Chicha, volume one, right? And since then, if you go online, like that, that compilation's blown up and I've, you know, traveled and toured throughout uh, Europe and, and the North America and like Chicha music is made, it's already past made its way throughout the world. It's like, so when I got home, I uh, started a band with Gabe and we started covering Chicha music and that got really popular, really fast. And we kind of realized that the ceiling for a cover band was probably not as high as if we started an original band influenced through the lens of chicha music and then subsequently through the region where we live which we have more mexican cumbia here uh, but we still love rock and roll and we still love you know a lot of things that a lot of people love around the world so anyways we changed the name to sixa around 2016 we've released uh two eps uh, an LP in 2016. And then just last month we released Genesis, which has been doing really, really well. And it feels like a lot of people for the first time are noticing that we've been putting in work for like eight years, but really it's like the first time they're hearing us, you know, uh, either way it's, it's been fun. And, uh, I'm glad that you like recognize the music as like a geographical thing right away. That's kind of the point. And I'm glad that you're picking up on that so easily. Yeah, once in a while I have a moment. <laughs> when I'm not a, in my senior moments, I have a clarity <laughs> moment. So, um, did you guys, were you able to record in one room or was this during the pandemic or was it prior or did you remotely? How did you do it? The recordings for this record were prior to pandemic. Um, we have our own recording studio called Dust and Stone Recording Studio here in Tucson, Arizona, uh, which affords us the luxury of, you know, experimentation and all the things that you can imagine if you have your own time. So we had about 25 songs written and 10 of them made the record. And um, it's it's very much a, a global pandemic type of album. <laughs> like, I think it makes a lot more sense in 2021 than it would have in 2020 when it was supposed to be released because we had to push back the release date. Um, and I'm quite thankful for that, actually. I think people uh, had to go through through some shit to kind of actually give our sound a chance. It was a little too fluffy, poppy world uh, prior to that. And I don't know if we would have, uh, I don't know, might have been too scary for people. Mm, interesting. Well, I've, uh, I love that song. Um, May They Call Us Home. It's fantastic. And Eclipse is awesome. Thank you. And uh, Land Where We Lie is so that's that that one I like the best. So oh, cool. Yeah. Did you uh, Land Where We Lie? We we blatantly reference like '80s new wave and try to do it in a in a way that also highlighted uh, cumbia <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> we even threw in a, a Lost Boys reference that Cry Little Sister with the yeah Cry Little Sister boys chorus. <laughs> 
at the end. Yeah, it was, that's awesome. So, well, I mean, what are the themes then? I mean, talk about that. I mean, you did say it's more appropriate maybe for 2021. What are the overlying themes um, of the record, or the larger themes? The Yeah, so they're, they're pretty broad stroke ideas. Uh, lyrically, we delve into good and evil, light and darkness. There's a lot of Christian uh, references, a lot of the songs, uh, titles actually are based off of that. Um, but it's not a Christian album. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd probably be selling a lot more records. Uh, Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> With a title like Genesis, well, I don't think oh, so. <laughs> oh, see, I thought we were actually, uh, it was like an homage to the band. No. See, well, I think it's more <laughs> the book of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, well, the, the title Genesis, it's kind of a, I wouldn't say a play on words, but it, it it does have a double meaning, obviously, because we are using so many biblical references in uh, the lyrical content. But at the same time, we're not, with the title of the album, we're not we're trying to, like, the book of Genesis. We're trying to say more like a creation of a new sound has finally emerged after all these years of, of trying to hone in something that was uniquely us. But at the same time, and then, you know, our album art is done by uh, this artist named Daniel Martin Diaz. Um, he lives in Tucson. He's a good friend of ours, but um, he's also got a worldwide audience. And if you look into um, like on his Instagram or any of his social platforms, you'll see uh, a lot of uh, mythologism. You'll see a lot of occult um, type type art, um, metaphysical stuff. Um, and it almost, he's been doing our art since the beginning, uh, music videos and album art. And just, we've always been a very aesthetic band. So he's always been part of those conversations. So I feel like his involvement almost informs um, how we write our music. And I think over the years, we've just gotten tighter at um, articulating that vision uh, sonically. Yeah, I think um, some of the photography I've seen with all of you guys in your black suits kind of in the middle of desert landscapes. Um, I mean, it's striking. The photography that I saw was really striking of whoever shot those. Mm -hmm. um, and it represents kind of a little bit of the material in this record. It definitely ties it all together. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. We, you try, you know, you try your best to tie everything together to make it easier on the listener and the person who's going to give you about two seconds of their time. And you cross your fingers and hope that it works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a nice piece of work. Are you guys planning eventually? I know this year is still a big question mark. Uh, touring plans around this? We, I mean, I mean, you know, Nick, like we were supposed to release this last April and be touring by that summer. Um, obviously those plans got pushed back and there's still hope that maybe we can do something in Europe, um, in the fall, but as you've seen, maybe in the news, like the vaccine rollouts and most of the countries that we'd be visiting are, are kind of failing epically right now. Um, so you can control the things you can control and the rest, you just have to push aside. We've already started writing material for the next album. I've, I've been working in in this room and in our studio demoing and writing my own stuff and just constantly staying busy with different projects and and falling in love with the craft which i'd never really had time to do i kind of just did it because it was out of necessity like oh i'm in too deep with music i can't quit now and you 
you know, you're touring and you're like losing sleep and money and da da da. And you just, I, this last year, I've really been able to fall in love with the craft again. And I'm, I'm super thankful for the time to, to do that and to realize that I do have something really cool here and unique and, and try to figure out the next few years, how I want to, how I want to be perceived, you know, as a, as a writer and, and somebody who's to be taken seriously. Right. Makes perfect sense. You're definitely a multi hyphenate in um, instrumentally and, you know, all the projects you participate in, which I think is fascinating that you keep yourself that involved. Um, how many instruments do you play? Or are you comfortable with? Um, anything guitar related is what I'm going to be most proficient at. I came up with a, a classical guitar background and that, that was what I studied in, in college. But with that said, I, I love playing piano probably more than anything. I'm just not nearly as, as skilled. Um, you know, but I, you know what, I, Nick, I would love to be good at drums. I suck at drums. I realized I thought I was, I always thought I was decent and I fucking suck, man. <laughs> I need to... Don't tell me the guy that learned, <laughs> the guy that tried to learn in, uh, you know, elementary school, middle school and on drum pads and <laughs> that's what I'm on a drum kit now, man. I am, I'm lost. I'm so bummed out. Yeah, I feel like I was pretty decent at drums in high school and just thought that that crap, that skill would kind of stay with me to where I could at least play in like a terrible, like kind of punk band. And uh, no, man, I, I sat on a kit the other day and I was like, dude, you need to like practice. You need to put in some time on the uh, so keyboards and, and, and anything guitar related are what I'm like most comfortable with, which makes sense because I'm a songwriter and those are usually the instruments that uh, you're doing that with. Well, and what are some of the other, uh, talk a little bit about the other projects that you've kind of either as a player, as a musician, I think when I first met you, you had like an alternative band was called Mostly Bears. Oh was yeah. The, your, was that your first band? That was my, the first band that made any uh, national waves at all, you know, and it was a short lived band. It was when I was like 21, 22, pretty, pretty young. And my bandmates were even younger than, than I was. So um, I think our drummer even at the time was like 17. So he was getting kicked out of every bar we played. And, uh, you know, we put out a, a, an album and an EP that made it about as far as you possibly could on the budget we had. You know, we were like number one on KEXP and getting played on KCRW, did a few tours around the country in a van, not knowing what the hell we were doing. Like literally just so happy to be playing music to X amount of people every night and drinking Paps Blue Ribbons in the back of our van, uh, stealing money or stealing uh, uh, deli meats from <laughs> from some stores when we had absolutely no money. I guess I can talk about that now because, you know. <laughs> Statute of limitations exactly. is over. <laughs> it's, it's, it's over, man. Yeah. Uh, Walmart will never know the extent. <laughs> I would like to say, though, it, we only kept it to Walmarts around the country. We, we, we wouldn't steal from mom and pop stores, just deli meats from Walmart. National tour sponsor. Yeah, they didn't even Walmart. know it. They did not even know it. Oh, we got a little greedy at the end, though, and it wasn't really us. It was our sound guy. I think he was a kleptomaniac, but it started out with like peanut butter and, and bread. And then by the end of the tour, he was like, Domino's frisbee of, of <laughs> rotisserie chicken. <laughs> I was like, "All right, man, this is getting a little bit much. We're we're 
we're not even just trying to survive now. We're just, <laughs> we're making a mockery of this stupid store. <laughs> Amazing. But hey, whatever you got to do, whatever you got to do to get by, man. Couldn't do that funny. now. I like honestly could not conceive of sleeping in your van off the, you know, New Jersey Turnpike before a show and stealing dominoes from a Walmart. But that was my trajectory. I mean, I talk about you know, paying your dues, man. Shit. And you guys do one record is mostly pairs or two? We did one studio record. We fell apart. Um, I didn't know anything about band management, personality management at the time. I'm not sure if we would have survived anyways, but there was, when you're that young and you don't really have anybody kind of looking out for you and your interests, it's really hard to stick together. You could be best of friends and um, yeah, it just, it's really hard to, to stay together. So I would say we had like a good two year run where we accomplished quite a bit, but we, we just, yeah, we had no guidance. We didn't even know how to like demo correctly. We had no idea like how to work on the next thing while we were still touring, just things you kind of have to pick up along the way, especially if you don't have a mentor who's been there before, you know? And I'd say the first person I met um, who actually was able to show me and be more of a pathfinder for somebody like myself was Hal Gelb. I don't know if you're familiar with Giant Sand and the songwriter Hal Gelb. He's kind of like, um, to your listeners who probably have not heard of him, um, he's kind of like the Leonard Cohen or, or like Bob Dylan that was never discovered and probably too difficult to actually tame, but <laughs> equally as talented, I should say. And yeah, just having somebody who's been through the indie world, he's about 25 years my senior. And uh, even, even to this day, he's been... Uh, monumental and helping me get from one step to another in a, in an indie type of world, you know, um, where you have to be very self-sufficient and, um, yeah, that was, a, and I think that's partially why I'm still here and doing it is because I had him and, and, uh, you know, after him, folks like him, uh, kind of showing me the ropes. Whereas before with the mostly bears days, it was just kind of like, you know, if you trip and fall, no, like literally nobody's picking you up. <laughs> like, Right. Start start the next project. <laughs> yeah. And how do you decide, like, as you kind of kind of vacillate uh, to and fro projects or transition, uh, what comes up next? I mean, is there a part of you sometimes that just says, you know what, I just want to collaborate. I need some people around me. And then, you know what, I've had enough of that. It's time just to lock myself in and do my own work here um, with no input from others. Um, how do you balance that? That's a good question. Um, I feel like I've, when I was younger, it was, it was too hard to balance that. And you want to say yes to way too many things. And you probably do say yes to too many things at the cost of your own art and creative, uh, output. Uh, with that said recently, you know, you get to a certain level in your career and, and you could say no to certain things that don't quite meet your standards or what, what, what you would like to be doing. And it gets a lot easier to like take in a couple of projects at a high, high level um, that, you know, there's going to be some kind of reward, whether it be, you know, film, film and TV placements or like a band that can tour or you want to just work with that artist a little bit more so that later down the road you can continue that uh creative path with them on a different project. There's, there's a, there's a myriad of reasons why you, why you take on certain projects. 
Um, and, and it's never because I'm bored, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I can always just write stuff on my own and I'm never bored, but with Siksa, there was something there that I knew I had to, to invest a lot of time into, to, to see it through. Um, I had, I had seen that band early on, just us playing like Chicha songs in, in the middle of fucking Germany and people losing their shit and then playing the same song in the middle of a set in France and same thing. It like takes over the whole set and you almost feel up mad that like these covers were like getting more reception than all of your original stuff that you put like 10 years into. Well, maybe there's an idea there. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, other stuff, you know, like I, I I'm a side man as well. I play, um, guitar for a band called Calexico. I've played and sang with KT Tunstall, Mexican Institute of Sound, uh, and a, a myriad of other bands. And and that's that's a different uh, field altogether, the sideman gig, you know? That's a... Uh, Is it fulfilling that you can just play your instrument? I mean, someone as talented as you, and that's really your role, and you don't have to do like a podcast like this one or, you know, it's kind of run a sound check or worry about, you know, whatever finance, whatever, you know, like it's very fulfilling and it's, it's almost like a, a break from when you're, when you're running your own projects and you're doing the podcast and you're doing the interviews and you're, um, you know, advancing tour support and all the, all the millions of things that they don't tell you about in music school, um, you just fall into it and it becomes a, like a cycle and you, you look around one day and you realize like, man, I, I probably dedicated like 2% of my year to actually playing music. And the rest was like organizing things so that I could play music. <laughs> and when you're a side man, you're pretty much just playing the music and then everything else, you have time in between shows. You don't have to do the interviews. You don't have to, you know, you could spend time shooting the shit with the bandmates, which is in the best case scenario, you know, people you enjoy in the worst case scenario, well, you can go and see the city on your own. Who cares? Um, so yeah, I actually quite enjoy those, those opportunities when they come and, and luckily I can kind of pick and choose, uh, when, when I'm going to take those. Through some of those opportunities, I mean, have you been able to build like a touring situation? I noticed maybe in Europe, which is kind of unusual, uh, more so maybe than in the U.S.? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in the U.S., um, I haven't spent much time at all, like putting my roots in touring here, um, not for a long time at least. And that's partially because more opportunities were available earlier on in my career in Europe. So you do that and you do the circuit and you go and tour with bands like Giant Sand or Calexico. I've done a lot of solo tours there myself, dating back to like 2011. So each time you go back, your base grows a little bit and then it becomes, uh, you look back and it's been nine years and you're like, wow, I have a little bit of a fan base there. It's because you've been, you've been going back every so often and, you know, Whereas in, with the U.S., I just, it's such a vast place, man. Like, especially living in the Southwest here, it's like every market, you're driving six hours and you're spending X amount of money on gas and the conditions are pretty terrible. In the U.S., we don't really have much for in the way of culture and arts and performance. And it just becomes logistically tough unless you have, yeah, like a umbrella 
company over your head, like, you know, supporting you with tour support and a, and a label who will put in the time and resources. So I've been doing it pretty indie style and Europe has been pretty receptive to that. And that's why um, I'm spending most of my time there. I would like to change that. And, you know, we're, I'm all, I'm all about not being 50 years old and having to make my money in Europe and fly, flying back. It'd be great to like have some more places to play here. <laughs> Have you been to South America? Um, no, but uh, with Sixa, um, we we have been getting a lot of love um, in South America with this new record. It's the first time we in, invested, or our label invested a bit in um, Latin American PR, and they've been doing a fantastic job. So every other day, I'm on like on a Zoom meeting with you know journalists from Mexico City or Bogota, Colombia or Chile or Peru. And uh, recently we got offered a festival in late August for Peru. And, you know, fingers crossed that that can work out um, with vaccinations and everything. That's the biggest concern. But it'll it'll happen, in other words, now, especially with Sixa. Like it's it's kind of a foregone conclusion that that's going to happen. But up until now, we've only done Mexico City and other parts of Mexico. North America still. North America, technically, <laughs> but it was, you know, I love Mexico City. Have you ever? Mexico City's a, oh man. Have you been there? What, you know, I went like three years ago for the first time ever, ever. Oh, really? Yeah. I was like, how did I miss this? Oh. This is the most beautiful city. I was stunned. I love Mexico City. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. And now I'm addicted. It's like, now I want to go live there. Yeah. There's a lot of expats living there. Yeah, well, the art thing there has gotten so vibrant, mm-hmm. um, or more vibrant. So, yeah, it's it's a beautiful city. It's it's gigantic though. It's it's in- so big. <laughs> I remember the first time I went there, I was playing uh, in Viva Latino Festival, which is this, one of the biggest festivals in Latin America, and I was playing guitar for Mexican Institute of Sound. And I get out of the airport, and it's nighttime, and like you're outside of the city at the airport. And when you go over the hill, you see like, it looks like the whole world is on fire. It's like all these lights everywhere. And you're like, holy shit, how many people live in Mexico city? And you would have thought like, I don't know, 13, 14 million. It's pretty big. It's like 40 million or something. <laughs> you're like, Oh my God. I thought maybe, you know, like it's like Hong Kong style. It's huge. Bigger than you'd yeah. think. And it's got such unique neighborhoods. And I mean, it's just, Man, I was floored when I was there. It's like, holy cow, what have I been doing? This is a two-hour flight from wherever, Denver or wherever. Why have I yeah. not come down here? Yeah, so. top top five city for me in the world, for yeah. sure. Easily. Crazy. Crazy. So you were kind of, um, I guess the Kennedy Center did a little, has a program where they did some arts across America. You were included in that too? Tell me a little yeah. bit about that. Uh, so during the the shutdown um everyone's kind of getting their live stream game together and f- trying to figure out like what they're going to do and all this stuff and kennedy center uh was part of that as well so they're figuring out what to do with all these you know their their arts and culture program which they had to cancel and stuff so what they did was they started this arts across america program and this was in the wake of you know george floyd and and 
and a lot of uh, social issues that we've been kind of played with in the U.S. And uh, obviously, like around May and June, it came to a height and Arts Across America started. And this was a way for them to show showcase uh, artists throughout this very vast country in every single state and region, um, primarily people of color and uh, art that represented those particular communities. So I think I was in the first week of that. It went for like four months, five months. And I kind of represented the state of Arizona. Um, it was it was great. They, they reached out to me and found me somehow and then let me curate it myself too, which was cool because then I could bring a couple of artists that um, I really dug here in, in Arizona that I thought were kind of always being overlooked. And um, yeah, that was very special. And you're on a international platform when you're doing anything um, with the Kennedy Center. And I'm still in touch with those folks. Um, yeah, they do some some great, amazing work at times uh, when, especially when it's when it's really needed and they, they have, are not afraid to use their gigantic platform to combat some of those issues. Right, was that done in a uh, kind of obviously video? I mean, did they put it up on their platform? Where was it available? Um, so I, th I know it's available on their like Facebook and, and YouTube as well, but it's on my Facebook. I think I, I pinned it to the top, um, of my page. So if people went to Brian Lopez music, they could check out that performance. And it, again, it was just an acoustic performance. I think I played for 25 minutes and then I scheduled the other artists in for X amount of minutes. So we had an hour roughly to showcase the Arizona, nice. Arizona region. Nice. Do you feel, um, since I've known you for a decade or more, um, do you feel, um, what was I going to say, have, has your music become more, um, let's say you're more politically activated um, in the last few years than you had before? Um, do you feel that was always there or do you feel it's come more to the front with all these issues we're confronting currently? Um. For sure, I feel just as a human being, uh, way more politically active and activated. Um, so that'll that'll translate to your art as well. I, I, I do kind of make a conscious effort to not be overwhelming or overbearing with with my message because I I don't want to be the guy on the soapbox saying this is how anyone should live. But certainly in it, certainly in my music, there's messages. Um, they might be subtle or not so subtle, but I don't think anybody will be, uh, I don't think that there'll be any ambiguity as to how my thinking is um, politically and just as a human being on planet Earth. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I would say for sure. Speak to me a little bit about, I mean, you seem like you've been immersed in music for a long time as a young man. Who were like some of your early kind of influences? Musically? Yes, musically. Uh, yeah. Um, well, like any good kid, I uh, I listened to a lot of the Beatles. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. I had a Beatles, like a bunch of their tapes, and then I got the anthology, and, you know, it's game over after that. Uh, that was certainly my first love for music, way, way pop music, I'd say, uh, before I could even play any instruments. And then what kind of got me into playing guitar in the first place was um, 
I'd say the the grunge boom in the 90s. And this was, you know, I was just a kid, but this was stuff that was cool to me. This was like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and all these, all these awesome, loud, raucous bands that were somehow given uh, a platform on, on MTV, which at the time, MTV was it. Like, there was only so much space for so many artists. And if you're one of those few artists, you're going to, there was a lot of visibility. So as a kid, you could go to the grocery store and they would have like guitar player magazines and guitar tabs and they'd show you how to play Smells Like Teen Spirit. And, you know, me being in fifth grade or whatever, it's like, yeah, I want to do that. And uh, I stopped playing as much basketball and started playing a little bit more guitar and, you know, got a grunge band together. And yeah, you just, it's like, it was like a drug, I would say. So the grunge era really kickstarted that whole uh, learning process with, with playing a actual instrument and putting in time to the craft and, you know, writing your own shitty songs that you made your mom listen to that were obviously terrible. And they had to pretend like they were, they were into it. <laughs> I wish I still had some of those tapes of my, my demos back then so I could burn them. That's awesome. <laughs> you're making me first off, you're making me feel old. Um, and secondly, you know, since I was involved with that whole community and it was an A&R guy, yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that had any influence oh, man. when you're, you were young. So You're still seeing it now, though. It's come around again, for sure. Like early 90s, it's back. And you're starting to hear more uh, guitar music. It kind of went away for a while, but now you're hearing it. It's, it always comes back with a little modification, for sure. Like people are starting to dress like Seinfeld again and they're hipsters. And you're like, what the fuck is happening <laughs> It's like, oh my God, some of the coolest like 20 somethings I know are look like Seinfeld right now. Mm-hmm. And I, it's like, am I supposed to dress like that now? Damn it. <laughs> it's so weird. Uh, but yeah. Larry David never goes out of style. Larry yeah. David is always in style. So. Well, he's kept the same style throughout. That's so right. That's <laughs> he never did go out of style. Yeah. Or you could look at it as he's constantly been out of style. Yeah, that's more like <laughs> that, it. That's probably, probably more. It sounds a little bit more realistic. So when people nowadays, like, you know, you keep hearing this psych term, psychedelic, everyone's mm. attaching this to something uh, meets psych or psychedelic. I hate is it. That, but is that reference to a musical thing or is that literally a reference to, you know, we're going back to the 60s and we're dropping psychedelics? I've, I mean, what's going on? I Man, I don't know. I, I hate that whole scene, like what what, a, what it's become or whatever whatever it is, because it is too ambiguous. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I can listen to a Bach fugue and that's way more psychedelic than you just putting on your reverb pedal to like 60% wetness. Like, <laughs> I don't I don't get it. Like, I just feel like it's too easy to be psych right now. And what the aesthetic that I'm getting from the industry, what psych is, is not, there's a cognitive dissonance with what I think psych is and what yeah, it'd be more like, like if you listen to Chicha, go listen to Chicha from the 60s and 70s. Listen to that Roots of Chicha compilation volume one. That's way more psych and way more rock and roll than anything I've heard in like 30 years since the grunge era. <laughs> like <laughs> seriously, it, it like brought, like I was done with rock in the, you know, 2000, mid 2000, 2010. And then Chicha revived it in me. I was like, wow, this is fucking the most rock and roll shit I've ever heard. And now I'm in a band that's like trying to bring that music to life, <laughs> trying to <laughs> resuscitate mm-hmm. rock and roll. 
Does oh. chicha, the drink, have anything uh, medicinal in it at all? I don't, or not do I don't think of? so. I think it's just <laughs> fermented corn. Yeah. Okay. But, but I mean, if you do go to Peru, and this is something if I, if and when I do go there, I do want to, you know, have an experience with ayahuasca with a shaman and do that whole thing. I mean, that's, that's a must for me. Um, yeah. I feel like that country's been calling me for a long time now. And, you know, I'm no stranger to psychedelics or anything, but I'm not like trying to boast like, oh man, I'm tripping balls on mushrooms. Like, man, everyone's got their own journey. And I don't feel like that always needs to be like a public thing. In fact, I feel like it's counterproductive if you're doing it just to like create an image of yourself as psych. And that's, I guess, ultimately that's the problem I have with that whole industry. Right. I mean, I love the people at Levitation. I love all the people that have given us opportunities. <laughs> However, I just feel like it's weird. It's a little too ambiguous right now for me. I don't know what that means. Understood. Like okay. putting on a flannel shirt and some yeah. Doc Martens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit, of, you know, you've been immersed in the Tucson community forever. Your studio's there. I mean, tell me a little bit about Tucson, like as a musical community. I'm fascinated that it, it doesn't get the attention I think it deserves, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And certainly in Arizona, I think it's probably more culturally relevant than Phoenix. Um, mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about your community. Yeah. Um, so I live in Tucson, Arizona, which is about 50 minutes north of the uh, Mexican-American border. So my community is very much uh, immersed in I wouldn't even say Mexican culture or American culture. It's kind of like Chicano culture and it's been generations of that. And I grew up in a very Chicano family. Um, so that's very unique because you have all these mementos of, of, you know, uh, Mexican Catholicism or fo ballet folklorico or mariachi and, and all these things that are just kind of very normal for somebody like me. And it takes me, uh, a traveling experience and having come back and being like, wow, you guys don't have that too. You know, like it, it was, it took me a long time to realize how unique this land is. Um, and you talk about native land as well. I mean, it, it's just a cultural melting pot here and in, in the art uh, that comes from Tucson um, is very representative of that. Um, with that said, it's not a big market. So you're not gonna, we, there's people, there's pockets of, of people and journalists that always are interested in what's happening in Tucson, but it's not like a worldwide phenomenon where everyone's trying to like talk about Tucson. It's starting to happen now, actually. It's kind of like what I saw from like Portland in the mid two thousands, like people are starting to move here to Tucson because overhead is low and culture is high. And you know, all the, uh, there's a lot of the boxes that you would check when you're realizing your, your town is being exploited. I think about half those boxes have been checked. So I'm trying to figure out how to either a get the fuck out of here or like buy a house before it gets way too expensive. Um, there you go. I know. Let me know if you find any money, Nick, that you can just send over for my yeah, house. I will let you know. <laughs> so, um, there's a studio. I mean, have you been able to keep it running during this? I mean, pretty much, or is the so, overhead enough that, you know, for you to kind of get through a, do you uh, let other people use it? It's, it's a business. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I don't run the studio myself and I have no, um, I'm not liable on the LLC, but it's the studio that we use as a band and like kind of our, our little family, we kind of have access to it whenever that said it is a commercial studio and it has been used 
um, quite often throughout this whole pandemic. There isn't a lack of, it was kind of, I mean, it's been kind of weird because you can only let so many people in there to record. So it hasn't been like big uh, productions, but you know, and you try to figure out like, okay, what do people feel safe with? Especially like, you know, you have the mask. Okay. And then we got to clean off the mic every time somebody wants to sing on it. Okay. What about these drumsticks? Did somebody touch it? At this point in, you know, March, 2021, we're a little less precious about stuff. That said, there's still no big projects, but it's been a pretty constant flow of artists that still want to get their ideas um, solidified. That's There's been no shortage in people's ideas during the last year and a half. Awesome. So one last question, I'll let you head out. Um, is there a song or an artist that like you've changed your mind about in a, in a good way, I think? Um, I think we all have them. Um, sometimes it's in, in a bad way. And sometimes it goes in a good way. Um, I know, I forgot. I know, I know there is somebody and I can't think of him or her right now. Uh, yeah, I should have, I, I should have given this to you in advance, this very question. Cause yes. It's Cause an I've, it's I've, an odd one. So it is odd, but it's also something I think about quite often because I, I wonder sometimes if I'm getting into way too into my own head about something and you try to take yourself away from the situation mentally and bring yourself back in, talk about right. psychedelic. Um, I, I, this is not a good example, but I have even a greater appreciation for somebody like Lady Gaga, for example, um, and, and the way she's able to craft her, her songs and, and even just kind of get her production to a level that where it's at. Um, I've always liked her, but um, I'll, I'll, ride, I'll ride with Lady Gaga anytime. She's pretty fucking incredible. There you go. Think. Yeah. I wish yeah, I, just, I, I, and I, and I, you could have included yourself in that even and said, you know what, that, that song I thought <laughs> was fantastic at the time. Now I don't think so. Or, or vice yeah. versa. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, no, I, I still suck. Um, oh, so, no, I'm just please. Kidding. <laughs> um, so far from the truth, <laughs> so far from the truth. So, well, listen, um, thank you for doing this. It was very, very kind of you. Um, this record is really, really fascinating and people should listen to it. It's, it's different, man. Um, different. And it's fantastic. That's so, been, that's, it, but it puts you there. Any record that puts you in a place, you know what I mean? In a feel mm -hmm. has kind of accomplished its task. And I think this is one of those records that does that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that endorsement. I think on my uh, tombstone, I want different dot fantastic. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> no, that's out. pretty much I'm it. Out. That was Brian. <laughs> I hope. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. Peace out, guys. <laughs> so awesome, my friend. Well, stay safe and uh, good luck with promoting the record. And I hope you guys definitely get on the road because I would love to see it live. It'll happen, man. It'll happen. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening this week. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week. <laughs>